You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. If I do survive the forest, what am I surviving for? I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl, the Ancient Mysteries Edition. Today's mystery starts in a forest on the slopes of a volcano, a haunting place filled with folklore and mystery. It began its days as a new growth forest that grew after an epic eruption. Today, it is known for a darker reason. Today, we're going to talk about Aokigahara, which means the Sea of Trees in Japanese. And to the rest of the world, it's known as the Suicide Forest. And this is your warning, this episode will deal with suicide. Most of this episode will focus on the ancient roots of this forest, but some of it will touch on the modern reputation of the Sea of Trees. If this isn't something you feel up to listening to, then we'll see you next week. We will have links in the show notes to different resources to contact. Aokigahara has gathered significant international attention because of its modern reputation as a place where people go to take their own lives. After the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, it's the second most popular suicide destination in the world. Usually, the reason for this is traced back to a novel written in 1961, Nami no To, or The Tower of Waves, by Seisho Matsumoto. I'm really sorry if I mispronounced that name. It's possible I may have. Tower of Waves tells the tragic story of a love affair that ends with a heroine choosing to take her own life in the beautiful and peaceful Aokigahara forest. Most people believe it is from this book that the modern reputation of Aokigahara as a suicide destination was born. But people have been traveling to Aokigahara for many, many years before the publication of Tower of Waves to take their own lives. And it's been associated with suicide and death and very dark things for a very long time. For over a thousand years. And maybe even... Longer than that. Keep listening and find out. Aokigahara is located on the northwestern slopes of Mount Fuji, on the island of Honshu in Japan. Mount Fuji is an active volcano and is the highest mountain in Japan. It is also the second highest volcano located on an island in Asia, and it's considered to be one of Japan's three holy mountains. Mount Fuji is so tall that it spends most of the year snow-capped, and on clear days, you can see it from Tokyo 62 miles away. Mount Fuji is a huge part of the cultural heritage of Japan, and it just so happens to have created one of the most infamous places in the country, Aokigahara. Aokigahara stretches out for 12 square miles. Looking down from Mount Fuji on the southwestern slope, it looks like an actual sea of trees, just endless green leaves and branches straining towards the sky and the mountaintop. Inside the forest, there is said to be an eerie quiet. No birdsong, no sounds of scurrying animals or insects, just intense, profound quiet. A quiet so deep that sound is muffled and muted. The woods are dark and deep. It's said in many places you can't see the sky. The light is blocked out by the towering branches, and the light is muted like a perpetual twilight. There are, according to the lore, no animals or birds or even insects in the forest. 
The ground is uneven with tree roots pushing the soil and rocks aside to make burrows and hollows. You can easily turn an ankle on the twisted roots and the ground beneath is riddled with hollows and caves. And should you take a wrong step, wander off the carefully signposted paths, it's easy to get lost. Not just because the forest is deep and dark and maze-like, but because compasses and GPSs and cell phones don't work in the forest. According to the lore, the moment you step off the path, your compass and GPS will stop working, your phone will mysteriously stop having a signal, and the woods will close in on you, deep and dark and eerily quiet. And maybe, just maybe, that's when you'll hear the wails of the Ure, the unhappy spirits said to haunt the forest. It's said that those who leave the paths rarely come out of the forest alive. That's the legend that has sprung up around this forest. But what's the reality? Is Aokigahara haunted? Why is it such a popular destination for people to take their own lives? And what part does it play in the history and culture of Japan? Join us as we uncover the secrets of this beautiful and haunting place. Aokigahara is a relatively young forest. It's 1,100 years old, and we know that because of how it was formed. It is much younger than the surrounding lakes and the other woods along the slopes of Mount Fuji, and the creation of the forest has its own dramatic and fascinating tale. So Jenny, get ready. I'm going to nerd out about volcanoes. I know. This is a, it's a volcano episode. It is. I'm just going to say, like, anytime I get to talk about volcanoes, it's a good day for me. Jen is <laughs> such a volcano nerd. I am this podcast resident volcano nerd. I think every podcast should have a resident volcano nerd. Clearly. Obviously. So when I started researching Aokigahara, I was actually shocked to learn that it was formed as a result of a volcanic eruption. You know I had to do a deep dive into that eruption. You just know it. So in 864 or 866 AD, the dates are a little fuzzy, Mount Fuji erupted. This is called the Jogan eruption. It took place in the Nagayama area on the northwest slope of Mount Fuji. It was a major eruption that produced a lot of cinders and ash, as well as an epic lava flow. Ash was found as far away as Edo Bay, 107 kilometers away. The eruption may have lasted for up to two months, and the lava flow continued for 10 days straight. The lava flow was so great that it split a nearby huge lake, called Lake Sonomi, into two, producing two new lakes, Lake Shoji and Lake Sai. Although these lakes are actually still connected deep underground through tunnels, which is really cool. Many people died, we don't know the exact numbers, and homes were lost. This must have been a massively traumatic event for those who were there to witness it. But it was followed closely by another extremely traumatic event, perhaps one even more traumatic, that affected Japan on a wider level. A few years later, in 869 AD, a huge earthquake hit Japan off the coast of Sendai. This area is not close to Mount Fuji. It's about 270 miles to the northeast. But the earthquake was linked to the volcanic eruption, and its effects could be felt everywhere in Japan. Yeah, and it was on the same side as Mount Fuji. So, the Jogan earthquake is estimated to have had a magnitude of at least 8.4 on the moment magnitude scale, but it may have been closer to 9.0, the same as the devastating Tohoku Megathrust earthquake that happened in 2011. In fact, it's believed that both earthquakes had epicenters in roughly the same spot on the seafloor. What is a Megathrust earthquake? So, and I could be getting this wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. Earthquakes happen when one plate is going underneath another plate, right? Like tectonic plates? Yeah. And this particular area um, in the Pacific is the Ring of Fire. It's got a lot of volcanoes and a lot of seismic activity. So when one plate goes under the other, I think it's called subduction. And when you get a mega thrust earthquake, it's because it's gone under and it's sort of been stuck in that position for a little bit and all of a sudden the resistance lets go and then it pops up and then you get one of those big huge earthquakes that are terrifying and really really scary but really fascinating from a geological nerd perspective like I have. They're kind of like when you pull a rubber band down and you hold it for a while you know eventually you're going to let that go and it's going to really be painful. If you're pointing it at yourself I don't know. I'm not maybe not the best analogy, but essentially that's what it is. It sort of gets caught for a while underneath the other plate and then all of a sudden it gets uncaught and it bounces up. And those are the really big earthquakes that, you know, we see like the one in 2011 in Japan. So, of course, earthquakes that happen on the seafloor can cause tsunamis, massive deadly waves. 
The Jogan earthquake caused a massive towering tsunami in 869 AD that completely flooded the Sendai Plain. It swept away villages and an entire castle and reshaped the 9th century landscape. There's a quote from the official records about the catastrophe in Nihon Sendai Jitsuroku, which is the true history of three reigns of Japan. Apologies for me mispronouncing all of that. And that's from 901 AD. Quote, On the 26th day of the fifth month, which would have been July 9th, 869 AD, a large earthquake occurred in Mutsu province with some strange light in the sky. People shouted and cried, lay down and could not stand up. Some were killed by the collapsed houses, others by the landslides. Horses and cattle got surprised, madly rushed around, and injured the others. Enormous buildings, warehouses, gates, and walls were destroyed. Then the sea began roaring like a big thunderstorm. The sea surface suddenly rose up and the huge waves attacked the land. They raged like nightmares and immediately reached the city center. The waves spread thousands of yards from the beach, and we could not see how large the devastated area was. The fields and roads completely sank into the sea. About 1,000 people drowned in the waves because they failed to escape either offshore or uphill from the waves. The properties and crop seedlings were almost completely washed away. Archaeologists have found evidence of this tsunami 2.8 miles inland. They found evidence of sand and trenches this far inland on the Sendai Plain, suggesting that the plain was flooded by seawater. They've also found the remains of the ancient town of Tagajo and its castle, which were swept away by the wave. In fact, the Sendai Plain has been shaped and scarred by a series of tsunamis over the millennia. Scientists have identified a cycle to these tsunamis. They appear to have happened every 800 to 1,000 years over the past 3,000 years. The 2011 Tohoku earthquake was the most recent one, and before that, there were seismic warnings that the area was overdue for another massive earthquake and tsunami. So, the late 800s AD was a time of great psychic trauma for the people of Japan. The people were reeling, both from a more localized but devastating volcanic eruption, and then a massive earthquake and tsunami in quick succession. But over the years, a great forest would grow on the slopes of Mount Fuji, on top of the lava flows that had once caused such destruction. Aokigahara. Aokigahara is, as we've said, a relatively young forest at just 1,100 years old. It took only about 100 years to cover the lava flow laid down during the Jogan eruption. Today, Aokigahara is still a relatively new forest comparatively. Nearby, between Aokigahara and Mount Fuji, grows a more ancient forest that escaped the destruction of the volcanic eruption. That one is approximately 12,000 years old, according to a documentary that I watched. Do you remember the name of it? I was really interested in that forest, but I couldn't find anything on it. There's a link in the show notes. It's actually this documentary. There's not a lot in English language that are good documentaries, but this one was done by a travel blogger who went with a guide into the forest. His guide was a British expat, and he's the one who showed him this area. I don't remember what the name is. It is in the show notes, and that's where I got that fact from. He took him up to like a certain area and showed him this part where you can see like the demarcation between the lava flow and the new growth forest and then the older forest. Cool. There's like two or three uh, YouTube documentaries and they're not very long. That's the other maddening thing with this episode was I wanted a lot of information, but nobody has really put the information together in the way that I wanted to find it. So it was really hard to find that kind of stuff. A lot of stuff either focuses on the really modern reputation of the forest. Or there's bits and pieces and like, this is what happened in this earthquake and this tsunami, but not a lot that tie it all together as one cohesive unit. So hopefully this will be a resource for someone else. That's why we have this episode. Exactly. So Mount Fuji has always been a sacred place. It stands 12,389 feet tall. It can be seen from Tokyo on a clear day, which I believe it's like something like 60 miles away, right? Yeah, it's like 60-something miles away, something like that. We quoted it earlier, but yeah, it's a long way away. Mm -hmm. It absolutely dominates the landscape of Japan. The mountain is considered a sacred place where people have taken pilgrimages for thousands of years. Today, more than 70,000 people climb to the summit each year, some of them hiking through the night to see the sunrise from the top of the mountain. It's a spectacular and moving experience. According to the English language sources that I was able to find, so please bear in mind that's where this is coming from, Buddhists believe that Mount Fuji arose from the earth after an earthquake. This earthquake also created the largest lake in Japan in about 286 BC. Since then, Mount Fuji has been regarded as a sacred mountain. 
Buddhists believe that the mountain is a gateway to another world. Shintoists believe that Mount Fuji is the sacred goddess Sengen-sama and the embodiment of the spirit of nature. And the Fujiko sect believe that the mountain is a holy being with a soul. In short, the mountain is a sacred and holy place for many people. Maybe it's a gateway between our world and the spirit realm. And it is still part of active pilgrimages and religions to this day. There are four different pilgrimage routes to the summit that happen in all different areas around the mountain. So we've laid the historical context for you. This is where we're pulling it all together. The Aokigahara Forest is a forest that was created by a massive volcanic eruption about a thousand years ago in the wake of a devastating tsunami that killed over a thousand people, growing up over massive physical and psychic scars on the slope of a holy mountain said to be a gateway to the spirit world where the veil between the worlds is liminal. The birth of this forest was tied to a lot of death and suffering, so it's no wonder people think it's haunted. In fact, it's said to be the wellspring for a very specific kind of Japanese ghost, the yurei. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is... Well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. So what are the yurei? According to the English language sources that Jan was able to track down in both Shinto and Buddhist beliefs, there is an afterlife. In Shinto traditions, after you die, the soul, which is said to contain part of God, is released and travels to the Yomino Kuni, which is the afterlife. Buddhist beliefs also contain an afterlife called the Anwayo. In an article called Yurei, the Japanese Culture of Ghosts Through History, Maria Paniscal explains the hurdles a soul goes through to reach the afterlife. Quote, The road is not easy, and any obstacle towards that goal can make the spirit turn into a yurei. This spirit has to reach the afterlife, but this can be an arduous task. That is why, when a family member dies in Japan, the living relatives have to watch over the deceased help them and accompany them during their journey to the afterlife by doing certain rituals. Once they have overcome all obstacles to the afterlife, this ancestor will watch over their living ancestors on the earth to protect them from any misfortune. So in both Buddhist and Shinto traditions, once somebody dies, they face a perilous journey to the afterlife, and any misstep can cause them to become trapped between worlds as a yurei, a spirit who has been barred from a peaceful afterlife. Just like when we talked about vampires in the ancient world, certain situations have a high likelihood of producing yurei. It could be because a person's burial rites were not completed properly, or because they died in a violent manner, such as murder or suicide. Or it could be because they experienced an intensely powerful emotion, rage, desire for revenge, 
love, or lust that has kept them on this plane with business to finish. Much like Western ghosts, Yure are spirits with unfinished business. Yeah, but unlike Western ghosts, they kind of are corporeal. Yure are often linked to traumatic experiences, and they themselves are said to be capable of epic violence on a very large scale. Some types of Yure are even believed to be able to cause natural disasters, like earthquakes or tsunamis. Or volcanic eruptions? Hmm. Hmm. The oldest depictions of Yure looked like the corpse of a person who died, complete with any deformities the person might have suffered in death. Bruises, bloating, broken bones, whatever led to their death, which, given the way these ghosts were made, would have been very traumatic. We're not talking about necessarily someone having a peaceful repose in death, right? These early versions of Yure would have looked a lot like some of the ancient vampires we discussed, shambling corpses. However, in the late 17th century, the Yure started to take on a unified look and form, and this form is related to 17th century Japanese theater. Yure all wore a similar dress and have similar characteristics. Here's how you can spot one. White clothing, usually robes or dresses, these are usually traditional funerary dress from the Edo period. They have long disheveled black hair. This comes actually from the Kabuki theater, where the actors wore long black wigs and had masks depicting different emotions on their faces. The hands and feet of yure are said to dangle lifelessly or be lacking entirely, giving the yure a sense of floating in the air. They are often accompanied by little floating lights, or hitodama, like will-o'-the-wisps, that are actually part of the yure's soul. These lights are blue and orange and purple, beautiful, and just a little bit hypnotic. Maria Peniscal explains, quote, The word yure comes from the kanji yu, or dark, and rei, or soul. A yure often has a human shape without feet, floating in the air. In addition, they have long black hair and wear a white kimono used during funeral rituals. They can also have some deformity since they take the appearance they had just before dying. So if they died violently, that would still be obvious on their body when they return. There are several types of yure classified according to their earthly agony. For example, the onryo are vengeful ghosts who died having resentment to someone or something. There are also the kosodate yure, the spirit of a mother who died during childbirth and returned to the living land to care for her child. Finally, I will mention the funa yure, the souls of the people who died at sea. Some yure are aware of their situation, with whom you can dialogue, and even help them solve their problem to rest their souls. But there are also the jibakure, a ghost tied to a specific place. These are the most fearsome, as they have a curse that can trap those around them. And that brings us back to our forest. In Aokigahara, even today, there are curses found on trees and around the bodies of people who have taken their own lives. This is a quote from a Bustle article about the brilliant Vice documentary on Aogigahara. And that documentary is linked. It's the first YouTube video in the show notes. It is so, so fascinating. Anyway, here's the quote. During a Vice documentary that takes a tour of the forest, an extremely creepy curse is found. There's a Jack Skellington-like doll with its face cut off, nailed upside down to a tree as a sort of inverted crucifixion. According to the documentary's guide, quote, they nailed this character upside down as a symbol of contempt for society. No, it's more like a curse. The curse is nailed in. Apparently, it's not that uncommon for visitors to leave a curse on the world they're leaving behind. So as you can see from that quote, the grief in these woods is palpable. There is a peculiar sadness attached to this forest and its association with suicide and death long predates the publication of the Tower of Waves. For centuries, Aokigahara has been a place where monks have gone to take their own lives by starving themselves to death. Many of these stories are not translated into English, and we only get little snippets of these events. But that's not the only connection Aokigahara has to suicide and death. The article The Fatalistic Pilgrimage of Japan tells us, quote, While religious suicides are individually documented, Aokigahara was also the resting place for many rural and peasant people during the Sengoku Jidai, the Warring States period, from 1467 to 1603. War and bitter famine were common during this period, and it was to Aokigahara and the foot of Fuji that people brought the old and young who they could not feed. They hoped that through their sacrifice, the spirits would find rest and pacification in nature. 
This type of behavior gave rise to Aokigahara's ghoulish infamy as a haunted space, and is believed to have created a cyclical vortex of the dead, drawing the living to final repose. So, according to the article, Aokigahara was once a place where rural peasants left their old and young to die in a form of exposure. And while I've seen other places debate this idea, it does stand to reason that during times of famine and war, it was probable that the old and very young were left to the wilds of the forest. We've seen this in other cultures, ancient Greece and Rome, so it wouldn't surprise me if this was true here. Again, I can only go on what I can see in the English sources, and some of it's debated, and this article that I did find about the fatalistic pilgrimage of Japan was really good and had great sources, so that's why I've included it. Yeah, and I I think that this isn't something that we need to single Japan out for doing because we've seen a lot of this. Like I know in Greece and Rome specifically, infanticide by exposure was was very common and it's in their mythology. Yeah, and we see it later on in other European countries during times of war and famine and stuff. There are literally folk tales like Hansel and Gretel about kids being abandoned in the woods for this very reason, right? This is something that did happen. Yeah, I mean, especially during the Warring States period when things were violent, there was a lot of upheaval, there was a lot of poverty, people probably didn't have a lot of choices. Absolutely. So, according to this theory, people whose families couldn't care for them were left in the forest to wander. It would have been a disorienting period. Lost in a forest of muffled sound and muted light, the ground itself treacherous. It's also an extremely tricky place to navigate because of the deep tree roots and hollows and caves formed by the lava flow. It's very easy to fall and break a leg or a neck. So, according to the mythology and the history, the people who were left to the mercy of the forest very likely became Uri, perhaps creating their own vortex of longing and sadness that to this day calls other people to join them. So, there's one particular type of yurei I wanted to discuss. The Onryo. The yurei who died holding deep resentment. Here is what our guy Wikipedia has to tell us about this. Again, the sources here are pretty good, so I felt like it was okay to quote Wikipedia in this moment. So, quote, While the origin of the Onryo is unclear, belief in their existence can be tracked back to the 8th century and was based on the idea that powerful and enraged souls of the dead could influence, harm, and kill the living. The earliest Onryo cult that was developed was around Prince Nagaya, who died in 729, and the first record of possession by the Onryo spirit affecting health is found in the chronicle Shoku Nihongi, which states that Fujiwara Hiratsugu's soul harmed Genbo to death. Hiratsugu, having died in a failed insurrection, named the Fujiwara no Hiratsugu Rebellion, after failing to remove his rival, the priest Genbo, from power. So, obviously, there was a bit of bad blood here. There is some real bad blood, and the one who lost in the rebellion came back and attacked the other guy as an onryo and killed him. He didn't succeed in life, but he succeeded in death. He did, by impacting his health in a negative way. So in this story, an onryo haunts Prince Nagia, and another one kills a priest named Genbo. That one is the ghost of somebody who Gembo defeated in a rebellion who came back to kill him through haunting him. The way it manifested is that he affected his health, so Gembo seemed like his health was failing and then he died. That's what it sounds like according to what we just read. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any, any other stuff in English about it, so I have to go with what we're deriving from that. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's one way to explain sudden deaths by illness. Especially if somebody falls sick who is formerly, you know, really healthy and strong, this could be one way to explain it, is somebody that they wronged in life has come back with a grudge from death, right? Absolutely. And again, we're going to talk about this in one of our episodes. I don't know if it'll drop before or after this with Daniel Ogden. We have also talked about this in both of our Vampires episodes. Like, in the ancient world, when you don't know what's going on, and you have someone who seems really healthy and then falls dead, putting a supernatural explanation on it is kind of a way to help your brain process what's just happened. Because otherwise, it's kind of unthinkable, right? It's just, it's difficult to process the grief and that sudden shock. Fueled by vengeance and resentment, Onryo were said to have a tremendous amount of power, including the power to cause natural disasters. Did an Onryo cause the 864 eruption of Mount Fuji and create Aokigahara Forest? Are there Onryo coming back once every thousand years on a 3,000-year basis to cause giant earthquakes and tsunamis? Is that what is happening here? I mean, literally, this cannot be proven. (laughs) 
this is so tinfoil. Like, I feel like this is exactly the kind of thing that makes me feel like, well, maybe the water erosion theory is not too bad at all. This, if this is a theory I'm positing, where's my Hugo? I'm just trying to write some spooky season fan fiction here. I'm very intrigued by this idea. <laughs> right? I As I was doing the research, I was like... Was this like a circle? Did one thing cause another? Like, is that, I don't know. I'm a Westerner looking at this. I have my own lens, but it's really fascinating. Who was the person who offended that Onrio and what did they do? Somebody spill the tea. <laughs> I know. But there was another depiction of the Onrio that I came across. And this is very sketchy. This is a very sketchy and tentative reference as I found it on a monster wiki. But I think it's worth looking at. And it definitely sort of like shows the evolution of the Onryo even into modern day. So, quote, Onryo can be dated to approximately the 7th or 8th century. The idea of an evil ghost coming back from the other world looking for vengeance was quickly believed in those ancient years. In the Japanese folklore, these spirits were seen as the punishers of abusive and brutal men toward innocent and weak females, threatening them with unbearable and eternal torture if they continued with their aggression against women. And this makes a kind of sense. Some yurei were the ghosts of women who had died tragically. And in Japanese folklore and mythology, the most feared demons were women who had transformed into a demon after an intense amount of rage or grief or sadness. And I found out a lot about this when I was researching Women of Myth. There are some entries about this in Women of Myth. And so when I came across this in the research, I was like, wow, it's all tying back together, the connections. So the idea of strong female emotions having an extreme amount of destabilizing power is a recurrent theme in Japanese folklore. And a woman who displays an excessive amount of emotions is terrifying because she cannot be controlled. She also cannot control herself. So the idea of Onryo being punishers of abusive men makes total sense to me. Onryo have a distinctive appearance. They look like a woman crumpled on the ground, all dressed in white. If you move towards her, thinking that she's in pain and needs help, You'll start to get a headache and then a pain in the chest. The hair on the back of your head will stand up and the onryo will rise up floating towards you. She will wail and keen like a banshee or siren, not speaking any discernible language, just a language of unending grief that is kind of universal. She will reach out her hands desperate to touch you, to infect you with a deadly curse. And yes, Onryo were said to live in Aogikahara, waiting in the dark woods for their next victim. It's said some yurai, including Onryo, can possess their victims, causing them to act in ways they wouldn't normally. Since the 8th century, the people of Japan have been looking for ways to appease these spirits, because the yurai have been associated with this forest for centuries. It's believed to be the home of these spirits, where they all come from. Because as we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Japan is a country that sits on the rim of fire. The Pacific Ring of Fire, the 25,000-mile-long undersea belt of extreme seismic instability that sits just off its coast. It's a hotspot for earthquakes, volcanic activity, and tsunamis. According to Maria Penescal, quote, Since the Haiyan period, 794 to 1185 AD, people developed religious practices to appease spirits. They even created the Goryo Shinko religion, where its temples were devoted to these difficult souls. However, it's unnecessary to go back centuries to see these sacred places dedicated to soothing these tormented souls. This is the case with the controversial Yasukuni Shrine in Tokyo, dedicated to World War II's fallen soldiers. Priests and monks have long been setting up shrines in Aokigahara to help appease the spirits of the forest. They have performed blessings. But there is still something that calls people to the forest. It calls them off the carefully marked trails, deeper and deeper into the dark stillness. I do kind of think, though, that it's important to say that this forest isn't just a suicide destination. Like, people hike here, and there are some beautiful sights to see, and it's not all just doom and gloom. It's also a beautiful natural spot. Absolutely. So that's kind of, if you listen to our opening episode about the Sphinx water erosion theory, I wanted to take you down this really dark rabbit hole, thinking one thing. But the reality is, that people still visit Aokigahara today. The forest 
is managed as a public park with signposted trails that lead to various natural sites. There's a lot of mythology about what it's like in the forest, and while some of it is lore and legend, much of it is true. But some of it isn't, and again, it is an absolutely beautiful place. It is a natural treasure on this on this earth. It's a stunning place to see. Thousands of people go to see it, like Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, school trips. Loads of people go to it, and they don't report any feelings like the sort of darker ancient mythology. Because these are ghost stories that we're telling you. And also, some of the features of the forest are quite unique. You know, some of the qualities that lead you to believe that it has this supernatural eerie quality. Like, there are scientific explanations for some of that. Yeah. We've sort of let you think it's this dark, spooky forest. Now, I want you guys to understand what it's really like inside this stunning, beautiful forest on the slopes of an active volcano that's holy and sacred. So, Jenny, let's look at some of the things that people have said about Akikahara. Yeah, and let's look at what parts of it are true and the reasons that those things are true and what parts of it are mythology. One of the items of lore about Aokigahara is that it is supernaturally quiet in there. This is perhaps the most prominent thing you'll notice about Aokigahara. The sound just seems to get eaten up. Everything is muffled and quiet. And that is not untrue, but it's for a specific reason. The volcanic bedrock beneath the forest has a sound dampening effect. Yeah, so it might sound quieter than a normal forest. I mean, it's it sounds wonderfully peaceful to me. I grew up in the woods in Vermont, and I haven't been to Aokigahara, but when you describe this to me, it kind of reminds me of the forests, you know, just in my backyard during a snowstorm, you know, like when the snow comes down, everything is kind of muffled by the snow and everything feels kind of eerily quiet and muffled. I always loved that. Like that was one of my favorite things to do is go snowshoeing or, you know, cross-country skiing in the woods when it was snowing out. I didn't grow up near a forest. I grew up in the suburbs and I've lived in, in a lot of urban areas. Forests and tall trees and that silence to me is always unnerving. I'd much rather hear the, like the traffic outside my window. And so that's why I was talking to my husband about this as well. And he had the same feeling because we didn't grow up in places like that. And I think we'll talk about this a little bit more later. But there are certain things about this forest that to me are very... Would, would up my anxiety, the quietness wouldn't be one of them. I would actually really like the muffled, muted quietness. I, I don't think it would bother me. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I haven't been there, so I don't know. But I like a nice muffled forest is what I'm saying. <laughs> I like that. The next thing is that compasses don't work in the forest. Now, this is only sort of true because they do work in most places. But because the rock that forms the forest floor is volcanic, some of the rocks have their own magnetism. So in some places, the rocks will cause compasses to malfunction. But this is only in certain places deep in the forest, and it is due to a very naturally occurring phenomenon. Again, if you stick to the clearly marked path that thousands of people go across every year, this should not be a problem. Also, it's probably not unless you put your compass like right on a rock, right? Yeah, directly on a rock. Yeah, like you, you wouldn't just be walking around and notice that your compass doesn't work, I wouldn't think. No, and it's one of those things where I feel like a lot of people with this one, they're like, oh, my compass is... It's like you're looking for something. It's like it's a volcanic forest, right? If you put it directly on a rock that is volcanic and has its own magnetism, this is going to happen. And if you didn't know that, I could see how that would worry you, but... Yeah, so another, another bit of lore about the forest is that cell phones and GPS don't work in the forest. Well, in some parts of the forest, this is true because it is a remote place. But that's not that weird because you're in a forest on an active volcano. It's kind of remote. It's not really that mysterious that deep in the forest you don't have reception. I mean, exactly. Like Maybe Japan just has better coverage than everywhere else, so it's a, little, a bit more strange. I could believe that. I don't know, but maybe. I could believe that, but I just think about, like, the amount of, like, remote places I've been. Like, different places in Greece or up in Scotland. Where, yeah, you just don't have reception. So here's another one. No animals or insects or anything live in the forest. And of course, this is total nonsense. Many animals call Aokigahara home, including Japanese bears. These animals might be shy around humans, but birds, animals, and insects, depending on the time of year, can be seen and heard. Again, you might just have some sound dampening issues. So another uh, bit of lore about the forest is that there's no light there. The trees block it all out. 
I mean, it is true that the forest canopy is very thick and tree branches and leaves block out some light, more or less depending on the time of year. But it's not any more claustrophobic than any other forest, really. I think so. I couldn't really tell. I know it does get snow, but I I wasn't sure on that. But I think one of the things about this is, so I do think that there's something really claustrophobic about forests if you don't grow up around them. Like I, I grew up by the sea, by the seashore. As soon as I walk into a forest, I'm a little claustrophobic to start. It feels like everything is coming in on me. And if I'm looking up and I can't see light, I could see myself getting more and more tense. And I've been hiking and where Jenny and I went to college was way up in the middle of nowhere. And there were lots of places you could hike and go see beautiful things. But I always remember going down the hiking trails and being really anxious and not being able to tell anyone I was anxious about this because a lot of the people I knew grew up around areas like this. And I didn't want to sound like, you know, I was a baby. But I get the claustrophobia here. And for someone who didn't grow up in that situation, I get the fear. Like when the Blair Witch came out, I'm like, yeah, that scares me because I don't want to be lost wandering in the woods. Blair Witch was so funny to me because I remember watching that movie and it it was quite scary, but I felt like they were really relying on the setting of this forest as it was there to amp up the scariness. And to me, that really didn't work because that forest in the movie looked just like the forest behind my house. And I'm like, it's just the woods, you guys. Like, you're just running around in the woods, scaring yourselves to death. I totally understand. But it's one of those things where like, I didn't grow up in like the Girl Scouts or going camping. So like being in that position always makes me feel deeply inadequate. And then again, the claustrophobia of like, how do I get out of here? I don't know these animals. I don't know these insects. Like I'm definitely one who's going to get spooked and scared. So I, I understand that. But I also think having written this episode, having looked at so many images of this forest, it is utterly stunning. It's a really beautiful forest, and I can see what would contribute to this very otherworldly atmosphere, you know, like the muffled sound. The roots are quite tangled, like the tree tree roots are very tangled on the ground, like a lot of the tree roots kind of bend up over the earth as opposed to going straight down in. Yeah, because they're on volcanic rock. They've grown up out of rock. Yeah, so there's all these like gnarled roots everywhere, and and the ground seems very uneven. I could I could just imagine you know being abandoned by your family here and being like, oh no, now what? Oh, I mean, I'm dead. I'm gonna I'm either gonna be adopted by a lovely mother bear who raises me to be Atalanta, or that bear's gonna eat me. More likely, that bear will eat me. I'd like to think I would make a home of tree roots and do quite well, but I don't know. <laughs> I think you'd probably be okay. You'd definitely do better than I would. Because also, I don't know that my mental state would be good enough abandoned in a forest like that. Like, I just think I would really struggle with my mental health in a forest. Is it the being abandoned by your family part or the forest part that's scarier? (laughs) I feel like the forest part is fine. The abandoned part, who knows? It depends on my relationship with my family, I guess. I mean, for me, it's both. It's like, okay, so if I do survive the forest, what am I surviving for? So, if you wander off the paths, you will never be able to leave the forest. This one, I have to say, has a tiny bit of truth to it. If you wander off the path, you will encounter really difficult terrain. You may not have great cell reception, and you run the risk of falling and injuring yourself and potentially not being found. Although there are, you know, forest wardens who patrol the area. There are forest wardens. There are. But I don't know how often they patrol. It's a very big forest. And also, like, it depends on the time of year, how badly injured you are. Because some of the year, it's snow-covered and really cold. Hypothermia will set in. Are there statistics about how many people, like, get lost in the forest every year? There aren't statistics on how many people die in the forest anymore. They stopped publishing them because they were going up and up and up. And they thought, the Japanese government thought that publishing those statistics was maybe contributing to more people going there as a destination to take their own lives. But I imagine quite a few people do wander off the trails and maybe just get lost. They haven't necessarily gone there to take their own lives, but I don't know the answer to that exactly. But getting back to why you might not leave the forest is the volcanic earth, as we mentioned, beneath the ground naturally forms sort of different caves and hollows that make the ground very uneven. And the roots of the closely packed trees further contribute to make the off-path ground treacherous. You might have an accident, you might get lost, and it might take people a while to find you, and you might not be able to call them. 
that is what could happen in any national park in America, right? Or here in the UK or anywhere in Europe. Like if you leave the paths and you get injured, then that is a risk you're taking. And I don't, I think the point I'm trying to make is that it's not any higher that that's going to happen to you in Aokigahara than it is in Yosemite. So in the modern day, Aokigahara gets a bad reputation in Western culture, kind of an infamous reputation. It's famous as the suicide forest, but in Japanese culture, it's more of a mixed bag. Many locals don't go to the forest because of the stories that surround it, but every year it is visited by thousands of tourists, many of them Japanese, and there are sights to see in the forest that have nothing to do with death and despair. There are carefully marked trails that lead to incredible natural sites, including volcanic caves, such as the Bat Cave, the Wind Cave, and the Ice Cave, where the ice stays frozen all year long. Yeah, and the Ice Cave they used to use to, like, store things in the summer to keep them cold. Because it's frozen, like, all year. It's cold all year long. It's amazing. Sorry, I went down a deep dive about caves and then ranged it in. (laughs) Yeah, it's a beautiful place to hike and to experience nature. Some go to the forest to visit the shrines to the mountain goddess. Aokigahara is a national treasure, and it deserves to be seen that way. However, unfortunately, since Western culture has become fascinated by Aokigahara, it has also become an attraction of the dark tourism industry, i.e. places that are macabre and therefore alluring to a certain kind of tourist. Some people go to Aokigahara hoping for an encounter with the supernatural. Others go for more disturbing reasons, essentially in the hopes of finding a person who has taken their own life, and in some cases, that's been sensationalized. And again, maybe tune off if you don't want to hear about this, because we're going to delve into it a little bit. So, for instance, in 2017, an American YouTuber and vlogger named Logan Paul visited the forest and came across a person dead by suicide. In a completely callous and horrible attention-seeking moment, he filmed the body and uploaded the video to his YouTube channel, where he and his friends can be seen joking. YouTube cut ties with him, he lost some movie deals, he did apologize for it, but, you know, completely inappropriate. I think he's a wrestler now. Yeah, I didn't delve too much into what Logan Paul is doing now because I literally cannot care less about Logan Paul. It's one of those things where... You're just like, why? Why would you do that? That's not okay. Yeah. Japan has one of the highest suicide rates in the world. And every year, hundreds of people are drawn to Aokigahara to make a final and desperate pilgrimage. This is a quote from the fatalistic pilgrimage. Quote, Aokigahara provides pilgrims with a private space, which Fuji, as a highly trafficked destination for both foreign tourists and Japanese, cannot. The forest is a sacred space steeped in cultural memory and creates a private locale where distraught, desperate, and despondent individuals can completely disappear. Essentially, for some, Aokigahara has become a final suicide pilgrimage, a sacred place where some people go and choose to take their own lives. Forest wardens are well aware of this history. There are signs up all over the place telling people not to take their own lives, to think of their families, and I think that they have, like, you know, a number you can call if you're in crisis. Hopefully you're... Cell phone will work where you are? Yeah, and your signs are in English and in Japanese and potentially, I don't know if they're in other languages as well. And forest wardens do sweeps of the forest as well. The forest wardens wander the forest looking for the bodies of people who have taken their own lives. Sometimes they aren't hard to find. They also look for people who are camping out in the forest. And in the Vice documentary, it shows you that they... Some of them are trained in how to speak to people who are potentially considering suicide, and um, they're able to sort of like give them advice and hopefully, you know, help them to leave the forest. There is a tradition that if a person comes to the forest to take their own life, they leave a trail of brightly colored ribbon or tape from the main trail, the main path, to their body. Sometimes a person leaves the trail when they're on the fence about taking their own life so they can find their way out if they change their mind. Or it's left so that someone can find their body after they've gone through with suicide and the proper burial rites can be performed. And this includes spending a night sleeping in the same room as the dead body so Yure doesn't rise from the corpse. Aokigahara is a place of deep history. It is haunted by the tragedies of centuries, both natural and human-made. It is a place of ghosts and sorrow, but it's also a place of intense beauty and filled with life. 
If you've been affected by this episode or if you're considering harming yourself, please know that there are people and resources for you. We'll include links to them in our show notes. So that's it for this week. Join us next week for whatever we're doing next. There was a point in time while I was writing this episode, and I'm being very candid sharing this, where I texted Jenny and I was very adamant about doing this this forest because I felt really strongly that there's a really interesting ancient story here. And number one, formed by a volcano. Number two, home of ghosts. Number three, like, I really wanted to look into these stories and look into something that wasn't the more modern suicide history. So I kept pushing for this episode. And then I did text Jenny at three o'clock in the morning, the weekend I was supposed to finish this episode, just saying, I have made a terrible mistake. You know, I remember, Jen, at some point we said that we wanted to do this series on mysteries because it'll be a little lighter and a little bit more fun than um, than what we were doing before. <laughs> so what I hope is that this episode has shown you the beauty, the natural beauty of this place and also the history. And to me, as a volcano geological history nerd, like all of that stuff is so interesting. And I think that history and that mythology make this more interesting to me as a place than some of the sensationalized stuff. Yeah, so that's it for this week. Join us next week for whatever we're doing next. You can find us at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter and Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. And you can also find our Patreon at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. And if you join our Patreon, we have extra content for you. We have extra episodes. We have um, guest interviews, video content, which we've been doing for the past couple months. It's been really fun. We've got um, all kinds of fun stuff. The membership started just $3 a month. Hope to see you there. And if you're not flush with cash, but you want to help the podcast, then please consider leaving a five-star review on whatever platform that you listen to us on. Your reviews help help keep us going, but beyond that, they also help us get noticed by the dark magic of the algorithms of the interwebs and mean that we're more likely to get promotions on things like Spotify or Apple or even sponsors. And all of that keeps the podcast viable and keeps us able to produce it for you. Thank you so much for your support, and we will see you next week. 